United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We have a fascinating show for you today. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back. And I've got to say, I really think you're going to enjoy today's show. If there's one thing that we've learned over the past few months dealing with COVID-19 lockdowns and social distancing is that we can still be more connected than ever. You know, we've witnessed something that is rare in nature, namely a quick adaptation and a seismic shift in behavior to maintain an environment in which we've grown accustomed to. Sure, we can't straight hang out and smash a schooner together, but I have witnessed, as I'm sure you have as well, the use of technology to suddenly rekindle a connectedness we seem to have forgotten in our modern world. Well, today's show centers around just that. Connectivity. While on the surface it may seem completely different, my hope is that I can show you that not only is it similar, but also how it's crucial to survival. Today's paper is about a year old, ancient in what we tend to cover on this show, I know, but there is a reason it was selected for this week. It's called Global Loss of Climate Connectivity in Tropical Forests and was published in July of 2019. Now, it deals with a topic that has been analyzed around the globe, and while the base subject is far from new, the term climate connectivity is fairly fresh, but catching on, and I'm sure you'll hear more and more about it. At a base level, climate connectivity is a geographic connections between multiple places, allowing for a transition corridor, if you will, for organisms to shift their natural range to a new area that more accurately reflects their old pre-anthropogenic climate change range. Put simply, it's a way to get the hell out of Dodge. There is no shortage on papers of climate corridors, but the one we selected for today was chosen for a few reasons. Namely, many papers look at climate connectivity on a local scale as well as using a static picture to create a species-specific, implement-it-today type analysis. A paper published by the British Ecological Society in April of 2017 called Spatiotemporal Connectivity highlighted this shortcoming, specifically that when we're only looking at a static picture, we lose a lot of dynamic nuances that play into the interpretation and our subsequent ability to react effectively. Rather, we must include a time element in any climate connectivity analysis, especially as we face a warming planet that is far from homogeneous in its pattern. Secondly, our paper today, in addition to taking time into account, looks at the challenges on a global scale. Yes, looking at climate connectivity on a macro level won't permit a species-by-species analysis, so it does lose some detail. However, it's important to know the entirety of the challenge we face, especially when we are looking, as this paper uniquely does, at regions with the highest biodiversity on the planet, specifically our tropical forests and their connectedness, not only today and in the future, but also in response to the deforestation as a result of logging efforts and agricultural expansion. Oh, and before we get too deep, as per usual, the paper we discussed today will be linked on the website southof2degrees.org, and I encourage you to pop over there if you want to read in a little more detail than what time permits on this show, 
or if you want to read any of the supporting documents or reports that I reference. As for our paper, let's start with scope. This looked at a 12-year period from the year 2000 to 2012 and evaluated the climate connectivity specific to tropical forests around the world. Why did they select this? Well, they selected these parameters as tropical forests of the world contain roughly 50% of the world's terrestrial biodiversity in only about 6% of the land area, and that tropical forests are simultaneously, and sadly I might add, the main source of new agricultural land. Finally, the time span from 2000 to 2012 was a period of extensive deforestation. Within this scope, They partitioned a high-resolution forest cover layer with the current and future mean temperatures and broke this down into cells, each representing about one square kilometer, that were greater than 50% in their forest cover. Now, when faced with a changing climate, fauna have three options. They can A, persist in place, B, move to a favorable climate, or C, go extinct. Think of it this way. They're faced with a damn choice, D-A-M. Die, adapt, or move. By the way, I just made that acronym up, so if you hear it somewhere else, know it came from south of two degrees first. Now, the go extinct bit is what we want to mitigate for obvious reasons. You know, I can't imagine taking my kids to a museum, watching them look at a creature and ask why there are no longer any left on the planet, only having to reply that my generation, their grandparents and their great-grandparents, took such advantage of the planet that we allowed it to happen. Unfortunately, that has already happened to at least one vertebrate. In 2016, scientists reported that the Bramble K. melomies, a small rodent that lived on a single island off of Australia, is likely the first extinction due to climate change. Subsequently, the Australian government has classified the Bramble K. as extinct. As tragic as that is, the Bramble K. does help us understand what we are looking at today in simple terms. It faced the dam option and was not only incapable of adapting, but also was incapable of moving or having what is referred to as a range shift. While we don't know every animal's ability to adapt, we do know some will be successful and some won't. For those that can't adapt, the only survivable option is to move. Unfortunately for the Bramble K, it was on an island without an ability to shift its range to an analogous climate, which brings us back to the challenge we face in the tropical forests of the world. While you may be saying, hold up, you just switched from an island to both islands and continents. Nice try, but I caught you. I would counter with, yes, however, we have created virtual islands with regards to forests. As humankind expands clear cuts for agriculture or logs for lumber and fiber, we have created great swaths of land that no longer are traversable for many species and create forest islands, so to speak. As our paper notes, quote, The potential for a species to shift its range in response to climate change depends both on the future availability of suitable habitat with an analogous climate and on the connectivity between that habitat and the species' current distribution, end quote. To achieve an understanding of climate connectivity over time and in the face of deforestation, the paper looked at each cell we discussed earlier and traced areas of light temperature following a gradient to cooler ones, then overlaid them with estimated temperatures for the year 2070 based on the IPCC business-as-usual scenario. The result? 
Well, the paper found that currently 62% of tropical forests, or about 10 million square kilometers, are, quote, already incapable of facilitating rain shifts to analogous future climates, end quote. It further found that in the 12 years of its data set, deforestation caused a further decline by 26.6%, which accelerated over time. To put this in clearer terms, the University of Maryland found that in 2019, the world lost 38,000 square kilometers of tropical forest. That, in perspective, is a loss of an area the size of a football pitch, or soccer field to my American listeners, every six seconds, day in, day out, for an entire year. Now back to the paper. Even within the scope of this study, there was, of course, variability by region. Quote, Indomalaya was the least successful realm with 70.1% of its forested area failing to connect to climate analogs, followed by the Neotropics at 66.8%, the Afrotropics at 62%, Oceania at 57.8%, and Australasia at 37.4%, end quote. Now, to be fair, any region with the ability for fauna to move upslope would allow them to mitigate a climate connectivity loss somewhat. But the path to do so in some cases were staggering. One such path in the Neotropics was 2,820 kilometers long. Let that sink in for a second. Now think about hiking that if your legs were only six inches long. Now the region with the largest loss over the course of the study was Indomalaya with the reduction in climate connectivity of 32.2%. Interestingly enough though, in the Afrotropics there was a net gain of 17.6%. This is, yet again, one of those spots I really want to point out where you have to be super careful. While this, on the surface, seems like a great win and could easily be quoted out of context, the paper did not distinguish between tree plantations and natural forests. This is where further study is definitely needed. Now, the paper did do a small reanalysis to address this, looking at seven countries that had published plantation, read legal, boundaries. This included Brazil, Cambodia, Colombia, Peru, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Liberia. When you scrub the data for these countries for tree plantations, you found that what looked like a 2.9% increase in climate connectivity was actually a 8.7% decrease. Even under the most aggressive anthropogenic climate change mitigation and a forest that doesn't degrade further from where it is today, the paper found that any species that rain shifted as far down climate as possible would still experience three quarters of a degree C of warming and up to 2.6 degrees C under the most extreme. Again, that's only if climate connectivity is maintained where it is today. Okay, so there you have the soul-crushing and rather bleak news. However, today, since we have a little time left, I want to cover a fragment of what we can do to mitigate further decline in climate connectivity and actually increase species' ability to rain shift. This could easily take up a whole show, but for now, we'll just hit the highlights in the last few minutes. If you were here with us last week, you may remember me mentioning some types of carbon capture systems beyond the really cool olivine sand that was our main focus for the week and their comparable costs, specifically afforestation and how it came in as one of the cheapest methods of atmospheric carbon dioxide removal at $24 per ton of CO2. Now, the positive externality of employing this method is that we can increase climate connectivity while implementing an afforestation strategy. 
Truly, the only reasonable way to reverse losses in climate connectivity is to reinstate forest patches along climate gradients, as well as change land use habits while working with small production farmers to allow for sustainable land use. Climate corridors are not appropriate for all locations, I want to be clear, but could be very successful near areas of high species vulnerability or endemism. That said, you're likely sitting there going, that's great, Brian, but can we do it? Can we even afford to do it? And if we can, how? To that, I'd say yes, yes, and I'll explain. First, does it cost more? Of course it does. A study in June of 2016 called Achieving Climate Connectivity in a Fragmented Landscape looked at the United States and found that only 41% of U.S. lands have enough climate connectivity to maintain climate parity in a 2.7 degree C shift. Yet if climate corridors were introduced connecting cells within 100 kilometers of separation, this would increase to 65%. However, it should be noted that the law of diminishing returns applies here as well. If climate corridors were limited to only areas with 10 kilometers of separation, you'd still achieve 60% climate connectivity. Further, a study published January 27, 2020 called Planning for Climate Change Through Additions to National Protected Area Network, Implications for Cost and Configuration, found that if future climates were not taken into account in developing climate corridor strategies, it would fail 14% of species completely. Yet by introducing corridors, it increased reserve network costs by 17%, and expanding reserves to protect species both today and in the future increased reserve network costs significantly by 59%. Keep in mind those numbers were just for the United States. Now, I wish I had these numbers for the tropical forests we discussed today, but the truth is, I don't. Further, these figures don't take into account the carbon offset such areas would provide, which would, in effect, lower costs. So even without global data, is it expensive? Yes, for sure. Can we afford it? Well, the real question is, can we afford not to? Now, if you're comfortable being that parent in a museum we discussed at the beginning of the show, you likely have a different answer than me. But my personal answer? I don't want to be that guy. So we have to find a way. You? What do you think? Before we go, I want to round out the show with a new segment edition. My recently turned six-year-old son has, along with his older sister, Ask me a lot of questions with regards to the podcast and what both myself and South of Two Degrees is attempting to do over the past few months. While I always want to provide direct information from scientific research for you, the listener, I feel there is a benefit in an extremely boiled down summary, both as a memorable takeaway and as an explanation whenever you're having an anthropogenic climate conversation with someone who doesn't get it, especially if it's a policymaker. In that spirit, here is our new segment called Summarize It Like I'm Six. So today we talked about as the planet gets hotter, animals want to stay in places like their home is now. The trees have been cut down, which makes it hard for them to find someplace cool without leaving the forest. We need to help them by planting more trees so they can get there. Now, this segment cracks me up, but I'll leave it to you, the listener, to decide if we keep it. Email info at southof2degrees.org and let us know or just comment on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram. 
Finally, I know there is a ton of information on sustainable agriculture and how it can symbiotically exist while maintaining and increasing climate connectivity, and that is definitely a subject we'll cover in future shows. But for now, keep in mind, as important as climate connectivity is in the ability for species to rain shift, it does not guarantee species persistence, only potential. As important as climate connectivity is, species cannot range shift if there is not sufficient habitats for them. Land use changes as well as land conversion are still one of the greatest threat to species persistence in the face of anthropogenic climate change. Simply put, increasing areas of natural habitat is a very effective method of increasing climate connectivity. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you enjoyed it, gained something from it, and I look forward to having you back again with me next week. Until then, stay safe. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.